they knew it in the privacy of their home. And we know that they can do all those things. And then they get up here and then they just don't. And you're sitting there going, because we experienced the same thing. Our kids were up here. Um, but you know, the, the chorus that they knew the loudest that I loved was Jesus, the Savior of the world. So for everything that they didn't know, they knew that. And that's the most important thing. And that's what we profess here at Cross Life. That's what we proclaim. And even down to our kids. So while our kids are back here, they're getting a gospel-centered message. They're learning that Christ on the cross is the only way of salvation and what it's like to try and live that life. And I will tell you right now, I do it imperfectly. I'm not great at it, but I strive for it. And that's what we try to do here at Cross Life is alongside one another, pursue Christ and make much of Him. All right, to that end, we preach the Word. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. So if you got your Bibles, open that. If it's on your phone, that's fine with me. But we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. All right, in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11. Last week, we preached on how Christ took on flesh to be the high priest. And and what did that mean that he was a high priest? And, and why was he born? Because in the Christmas season, we talk a lot, rightfully so, about how Jesus came and was born in the manger and how he took on flesh. But there are plenty of verses that tell us why he did it and how he did it and the end of it. And so that's what we're focusing on during our Christmas season. So last week we, took, we talked about how he took on flesh to be the high priest so that he could be the one who made atonement for our sins. And this week we're going to look at the other side. How Christ took on the flesh to be the humble servant. So the high priest of eternity came as the humble servant. And that's what it means that he came in the flesh. So y'all read Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 with me. Paul writes and he says, Have this mind among yourselves. And he's writing to believers. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So before we dive into this text, I want to pray one more time. Lord God, we have your word open before us. I do not pray for excellent speech, Lord, but I do pray for clear communication so that your word can be known and so that we can learn from it and understand Christ more. Because when we see Christ glorified, our lives begin to make a whole lot more sense. Sin is less attractive whenever you are exalted in our lives. And so, God, I pray for clear communication or that your word may be known and that it may work in us. But, Lord, you do a work that I cannot do. Lord, we love you. Amen. Okay, so there is only one point for today's message. Like The, the whole point of this is simply that Jesus Christ completely humbled himself to the point of death. And we're going to move through this verse to understand what each verse and, and kind of phrasing means because it kind of it swells. It kind of grows as, it, as it's kind of going along. I think about a music concert. They, they start with something that gets your attention. And then they have, sorry, Andy, but a couple of filler songs. I don't know the appropriate term. 
but they keep swelling all the way up into the finale. Or you think about the 4th of July, they, they start with something to get your attention, then they've got those that kind of fill the time until you get to the finale. And you know it's the finale because fireworks are going off everywhere and it doesn't seem to end and everybody knows that that's the finale. So this verse kind of does the same thing. It starts with, hey, let me get your attention here. And then he just keeps building. Then there's a swelling all the way at the end of this passage. And at the end of this passage, it says that Christ is exalted. Every knee bows and he is worshiped forever and ever by everything in all of creation. So that, that's our path. If you want to know where are we going, that's where we're going to go. He's going to get our attention. He's going to say, have this mindset in you. This is your mindset, Christian. This is how you should function. And I'm going to tell you all, I'm reading this and I'm sitting there going, oh God, that's not me. I don't always have that mindset, but that's why we need that orientation back to Scripture over and over. We need to be reminded, not of what I feel and not of what I want, but what does God's Word say? And as we read God's Word over and over, we realize that our lives will be drawn closer to it. So, if you want to know what the main point of all this, like at the end, what's going to be the takeaway? I think that by the end of this, y'all, we should be marveling at the fact that Jesus was humble and came for us. We should be praising him for his humility. And then we also, at the end of this, probably need to be repenting of the sin of our pride and taking our eyes off of him and then passionately pursuing him again. All right, so I think we got to start here, though. What is humility? Now, guys in, the, in our church, we went through a study on humility by Andrew Murray, and that was tough. And even at the end of it, I'm sitting there going, I still don't quite understand what humility really is. Humility is like one of those things you feel like you get it. And then as soon as you feel like you've been humbled, then God's like, you know, you can stoop lower. You know, you can stoop lower. And so I think that C.S. Lewis, though, nails it. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's what I tend to think of. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so I like those good quotes. I write them down in a notebook and I, I hold on to them. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. We can, we can do that. And we can also do it in such a way that we're humble bragging as well. Right? So in our humility, we're bragging like, I can't believe I just got first place in this competition. I mean, I, I granted, I got up every morning and I trained and I ran and I, I beat Chaz. You know, we, we ran a, a half, not a half marathon, but a 5K because she signed us up and and I'm not a runner, but you know what? I beat her by 0.4 seconds. Praise the Lord that he gave me the strength and the energy that we do that. We humble brag really well. We need to be reoriented to what Scripture says humility really is. And what C.S. Lewis really gives us a good commentary is, is he says, it's not thinking less of yourself. Because when you're thinking less of yourself, you're still focusing on yourself. No matter how much you try to bring yourself down, you're still the standard that you're trying to bring yourself down from. He said, in fact, humility is thinking of yourself less to where your own agenda, your own preferences, your own opinions, they just simply don't enter that equation anymore. And I've found that the way that we grow in humility is not looking even at ourselves anymore, but just looking to Christ. Because as Christ is exalted and we see him as he truly is, not what we want him to be, but what he truly is according to Scripture, whenever he is high and exalted, then we begin to live for that because that's so much more beautiful and we live less for ourselves. We don't even consider ourselves anymore. We're going to see that in the life of Christ. But he doesn't even enter his own agenda into this. So we're going to move through these passages. 
but we need to be consumed by a greater desire than ourselves. And that's really hard in America. That's not an anti-American claim. That's just a, man, it's really hard for me to think of myself less and love something more. But it's the tenor of the Christian life. Christianity is that we passionately pursue Christ to the end of our days and then for endless days we praise His name. Christianity is not about us. So our messages here don't focus on us except to say we need to reorient back to Him. The heart of Christian humility comes down to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Listen to this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. Psalm 27, 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so all of that is Scripture saying, you have your strength, you have your riches, you have your might, you have those things that you are really, really good at, be it wisdom, riches, or might. But that's not what we boast in. We boast in this, that we know and fear the Lord. All right, so let's move through Philippians 2.5. Let's see what God's Word has for us. Because this Christmas season, let's rejoice in this. Praise the Lord He came for us. That He took on flesh and He died for us. We're good at Christmas at preaching about Christ coming in the flesh. And we're good at Easter about proclaiming the cross. But the Christian life is always a constant message of Christmas and Easter constantly. So what we're doing this Christmas season, like I told you, is we're pushing into the incarnate one, the one who came in the flesh. And so last week it was a high priest. This week it's a humble servant. We see that in Philippians 2.5. Here we go. It says, have this mind among yourselves. And by the way, I'm in the ESV version. Um, if you're in the King James, the New King James, the NIV, those are perfectly legitimate versions, but that explains why the the words are a little bit different. The thrust is the same. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. All right, there's that hook. Have this mind in yourselves. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the believers in Philippi. And then so he's also writing to us. So believers, as we gather here, here's what he says to us. Have this mind among yourselves. And you got to stop and say, which mind and why in the world did he just say that? Because context always matters. Context always matters. Like, you ever been in, a, been in an argument? Spouses would never fight, best friends would never fight, and brothers and sisters never fight. So this might be a foreign concept, but people fight and people argue, and context gets messed up. And whenever Chas and I have a, have a misunderstanding, it's usually because what I said here is not what I really meant. It was out of context, and, and it came across in the wrong way. So context always matters. Here's your context. Go back to Philippians Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's kind of like ramp up. If this were an interstate that we're about to be cruising along in the next six or seven verses, we got to hit the on-ramp, and the on-ramp is this. Paul began all of that with, so, Christians, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, that's what you and I need. Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, and complete my joy being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You know what he's saying there? Is if there's any comfort and encouragement in the Christian walk, then let there be unity among you. Like let everybody have the same mindset. Let everybody be of one accord. Like everybody just be thinking in this way. And look at verse 3. 
This one needs to be like triple underlined in my Bible. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Y'all, what a, what a terrible reputation for Christ whenever Christians live for themselves out of selfish ambition and conceit. Whenever Christians sit in church and it's about my agenda and my agenda and my agenda and my preferences and there's no like-mindedness, but there's division in the church. And I don't just mean the churches we gather here today like, like this section, you know, it's like at a concert where there's this section and then there's this section and this section. And everybody sits in their section according to where they're comfortable. That's nowhere in Scripture that it should ever be that way. It should be the opposite. That in the church there is unity and there is nothing done amongst believers out of selfish ambition or conceit. So we need to be careful because in our culture, our culture will tell us that, that yourself, self is more important than others. Our culture will tell us that, that we're justified if we're passionate about it. And our culture will also tell us that our opinions and our preferences have a stronger standing than many other things. And that creeps into the church because we're human. Like We will always contend with sin. And so Paul constantly is reminding them, you need to strive for unity. You need to keep pushing. So may we just be careful that the pride of this world does not drown out the humility of Christ in us. If Christ was humble enough to die on the cross for us, then Paul is saying, have the same mindset among yourselves so that there's unity in the church. All right, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on going. I'm going to push past there. So as we start to, to struggle with, with our humility, I really have found that as we look to Christ on the throne, that that has been one of the most saving graces of any church. But whenever we focus on the issues of a church or issues of, of believers or issues in the world, then we can become divided. And so listen to what Romans 12, 2 says. And this is essentially what he's saying with have this mind among yourself. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So, going back to Philippians, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the same as him saying, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he's got us hooked. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Why? Because in Philippi there were divisions in the church. And he's saying the way that you need to course correct is understand that Christ has unified you. Christ has brought you peace. Christ was humble. Therefore, you be humble. Then he goes on and he has this weird phrase. He says in verses, verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I wrestled with that one for years. I got it in one sense. But I'm going to tell you, I never fully understood it because what does it mean that God, as Scripture teaches, that Jesus being God because of the Trinity, which is its own mystery in and of itself, that he did not see the, the what does it say here, the equality with God, a thing to be grasped. That is a really weird phrase. This is a time whenever it is good to have other translations because I think other translations actually hit it better than the ESV. Here's what the King James Version says. That's what I... I cut my teeth on growing up. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. 
I like the NIV more, though. Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, listen to this, something to be used for his own advantage. And listen to the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Christ, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as, listen to this, something to be used for his own advantage. That's a better translation. A better translation of did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A better understanding of it is this, that all of the privileges of Christ that were his on the throne, I mean, he had absolute right and authority to sit there for all of eternity. He needed nothing. Absolutely nothing. All of heaven served him. All of creation would sing his name. He needed absolutely nothing. He had all the privileges of being the son of God and being fully God. And yet, he did not see equality with God as being something used for his own advantage. He didn't see, another translation says, he didn't see it as something that he should just cling to for his own selfishness. That's a better understanding. And, and what it really tells you and me is this, that when Christ came for us, he was willing to set all the privileges that were fully his. He was willing to leave all of that and bring all of that power and majesty and authority in himself down to us so that he could bring them to the creatures that he created. Warren Wearsby says this, he did not consider equality with God as something selfishly to be held on to. Jesus did not think of himself. He thought of others. His outlook or his attitude was that of unselfish concern for others. This is the mind of Christ. An attitude that says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. And to do this, I will gladly lay them aside and pay whatever price is necessary. Y'all, even though all of the attending angels of heaven and everything that was his... He chose to bring everything of his own down to his people. He came in the flesh. He came in the manger, set aside every privilege that was his for you and for me so that we could sing his praises for all of eternity. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped and held on to selfishly, but he said, if I go, I can take all glory to them to the praise and the glory of the Father. So then it follows. It says there... It says, but he emptied himself, taking the, form of the man, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So all of this is kind of this therefore. So have this mind amongst yourselves. Christ was not willing to hold on to the privileges himself. So he took on the form, not just of man, but the form of a servant. You realize that he could have come as a high king. Could have. He could have come as Israel's high priest. Not the metaphorical spiritual high priest that we talked about last week, but he could have come as an earthly high priest. He could have been born into a rich family. You go back and you read the, the accounts of his birth and how they um, sacrificed pigeons and doves, Mary and Joseph. That's what the poor would sacrifice according to the law. They didn't take the pure and spotless lambs and goats. They took the bare minimum, which was all that they absolutely had. He was born to a poor family all the privileges, all the glory of God, and he lays it aside and he's born into a manger to a poor family and he lives his life as a servant. He serves the harlots in the cities where he goes. He calls out to the fishermen who are outcast in their societies. He embraces the tax collectors whom everybody hated. Whenever the crowds would gather, he would spend his time not saying, I'm the king who came for you, serve me, but rather he would serve them day and day and day. 
to the point where his disciples would say, you need to rest, we need to go away, and he would serve constantly. That includes serving you and me. You know who you are, even whenever I don't. I can't know your heart. And to be honest, I don't want to know your heart. I know my heart. And even as a Christian, we are prone to sin, and we are prone to stray and wonder. But the glory of God in the gospel is that knowing us, Scripture says, even while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He took on the form of a servant. Right before his death, whenever his disciples should be serving him, he washed their feet. And then whenever they came for him and they they arrested him, he gave himself so that his disciples could go free. He even said, I could call down the myriad of angels and stop this. He even said, who did you come for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, then let them go. So then whenever they take him and they bind his wrist around a pole and they begin to whip his body and they rip his flesh with the cat of nine tails, he's still the humble servant. We realize that at any point during his passion, while he's being beaten and mocked and slandered and ridiculed and falsely accused, at any point during any of that, He could have called down the myriad of angels or he could have just simply stopped and returned to the throne. But in his humility, in taking on flesh, he did not think that the equality with God was something that he should cling selfishly to. Because had he, you and I would not gather here today. We would not praise our God and we would not be his people. He didn't just come as a high priest and make atonement for sins once and for all. He came as a humble servant. And that's what Paul is holding up. He says, have this mindset among you. Be so transformed by the gospel that you don't live for yourselves and cling to all the privileges of your life and the gospel and everything just for yourself, but let it pour out for everyone just as Christ did. Let him be the example. You could kind of look at this verse in this way. Christ did not just condescend to take on flesh. Like he took on the flesh of a servant. He became the lowly of the lowly. And if we're not careful, then the pride in our life, we don't want to be the lowly of the lowly. We want to, be, we, we want to serve, but we need to serve in a certain capacity. So we want to check that within us. Y'all, how opposite, what I'm getting at, how opposite of Christ can I be? Truly. Uh, I'll put myself on display. That, that where he sought to be a servant and he, where he sought to be a servant, I sometimes despise servanthood. Like the opportunity comes up and we're like, oh, I want to, but, you know, I, I, I've got this. Or, or where he would completely empty himself, my pride will puff me up. There is something in our humanity that contends against the humility of Christ. James even tells us, Why are there divisions among you? Why do you war and why do you fight? It's because your passions rise up within you and you war with one another because of your own desires. He's saying that pride creeps in and it separates us and that's why we fight and that's why we war. And Philippians is saying, you know, the solution to all that is forget yourself and think only of Christ who did not think of himself. You know, there's a call here to humility because pride is deceptive and it's very near always put myself on display because I know me and I know what I war with and probably more than I know myself my wife knows me so sometimes I'll say something she's like you you know that that's your pride I'm like no it's not and it absolutely is 
Listen to what Psalm 138, 6 says to us. And y'all listen very closely. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, he regards the humble. But the haughty or the proud he knows from afar. So one, Psalm 138, 6 tells us that the pride, he knows them from afar. He, just, he, he sees them as those apartment buildings right over there. They're far off from him. But those who are humble and lowly, he draws near to them. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Everything about the kingdom of this world is unbidden in the kingdom of Christ. All right, Philippians 2, 8. If I said that Christ condescended and took on flesh and he condescended and took on the form of a slave, then Philippians 2, 8 says he condescended even lower. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His servanthood doesn't end with just helping others, but, but he lays down his life. He tells us in John that, that the good shepherd will lay down his life. And that's exactly what he does. He died for all of them. He died for us. And it's because of this. Because against him and him only have we sinned, y'all. Like our sin is not just towards one another, but we have sinned against a holy God. And the only way that we are forgiven by a holy God is, is that there is a holy sacrifice. But I wasn't saved because of my acts done in righteousness. Scripture is very clear about that. It wasn't because I got wise enough. It wasn't because I finally figured out how to read the Bible. I was saved because Christ died for me and I put my faith in him. But he humbled himself to the point of death and even death on the cross. And I alluded a little bit to it earlier, and we can walk through the passion of all that again. But think about it. If you were the high king of all of heaven, to stoop down to your earth would be condescending in humility. To take on the form of a servant would be condescending in humility, condescending to us in, in humility for us. But being beaten and ridiculed and mocked by those whom you came to save. I shaved my beard this morning a little bit closer, but you remember that, that this high king who came for us, that they put their fingers in his beard and they ripped out the, the, the hairs from his beard. You remember that whenever they went to him, the cat of nine tells that they would wrap his arm around this huge pillar that he created because he was in the beginning and all things were created for him, through him and for him. And his arms were wrapped around and they were bound and they would begin to whip him. And every time they whipped him and falsely accused him, then it would, those cords would wrap around his ribs and they would jerk and these bits of stone and metal would rip into his flesh. Isaiah says that he was marred beyond human semblance. Like we watch The Passion of the Christ and, and, and that's hard to watch. It's hard to watch an innocent person go through that. But he, in Passion of the Cross, I'm sorry, Passion of Christ, he still looks like a man hanging on the cross. Isaiah says that he was beaten and marred beyond human semblance. In other words, he was beaten to a point to where you would sit there and go, is that a human anymore? He would bleed and die for us whenever all the privileges of the throne were his. But born in a manger, bringing us salvation. All of that, all of his death, all of that humbly coming was so that he could bring us home. Like, that's it. He could save a people unto God 
who would glorify God in this world, in Fort Smith or in Van Buren, whatever context, and wherever you live, in Charleston, wherever it is that we live, he came and he died for us and endured all things so that the privileges of his throne would be set upon us. It doesn't just say that we're saved from death. It says that we're saved to life. Romans says that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are brothers and sisters with Christ, and that we have the full inheritance of all that he has. That's what he came to accomplish. You know, the, the weight of our sin and the love and his love for this world hung on the cross. I've been told that, and I've heard many great pastors and theologians say, that Christ on the cross shows us his love for us. I think what it shows us first is the weight of our sin. The weight of our sin and the depravity of who we are took such a sacrifice as that to redeem us. He did it out of love for us, but it would take a sacrifice like that. That's how wicked our sin was. Now, all of this goes into Philippians 2.9, our last part of all this. So 2, 9, 10, and 11 go to this. Therefore, so because Christ has humbled himself and stooped so low as to be a servant, and then has stooped lower to death, he says, therefore, because of all of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every time there's a therefore, there's that's therefore a reason. Everything has been building up to this one point, and that's it right here. Therefore, so because of his refusing to hold on to the throne for himself, because he condescended to us, because he satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. Therefore, Christ, I'm sorry, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the highest name. On every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, it says, and every tongue will profess his name. And all of this to the glory of God the Father. Well, this was always Jesus' chief motivation, the glory of God the Father. That's why he came. That's why he redeemed us. That's why he prayed, not my will, but your will. He prayed, Lord, would you take this cup for me so that I don't have to suffer? And then he says, but it's not my will, it's your will. Your name be praised. Whatever God would do in the life of Christ, Christ embraced it to the glory of the Father. Our salvation is, is secured. Our adoption was a result and glorifying the Father was always a desire. What was the, the quote last week? Our hell he made his own so that his heaven may be ours. There was a great exchange that took place that the hell that we deserved for our sins, Christ took it upon himself and became sin for us. And the heaven that was his, he brought it to us and made it our own. Now Jesus came for us, laying aside his outward glory so that he could bring us home. This is a longer quote. This is part of the conclusion, though. Andrew Murray says this, and, and, and listen to this. It follows that nothing can be our redemption but the restoration of the lost humility, the original and only true relation of the creature to its God. And so Jesus came to bring humility back to earth, to make us partakers of it, and by it to save us. In heaven, Jesus humbled himself to become man. The humility we see in him possessed him in heaven, and it brought him, he brought it from there. So here on earth, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. His humility gave death its value. 
and so became our redemption. Listen to this. His humility is our salvation, and His salvation is our humility. So therefore, church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so how do you and I respond to this this truth that, that, gets rem, that we get reminded of. Three things. Y'all, we should never cease to marvel at his humility. The fact that he would give up everything that he possessed and that was rightfully his, that he would come to us, may we marvel at that. Sometimes we see the wonders of the world. You ever see a sunset and in that moment it captures you and you're reminded again, it's kind of a refreshed awe and you're just moved by it. But then you see so many sunrises and sunsets that it no longer moves you anymore. May that never be true of Christ. But I can tell you, the human experience that we endure, we are prone and tempted to grow old to the wonder and the marvel of Christ. We're in church, we get used to it, we live in this world, we get kind of calloused and cold to the things, that, that, and they make us comfortable whenever really we should marvel and be in awe of who He is. He laid aside everything. We need to praise his great emptying of himself on our behalf. So we marvel and we praise and then you and I should honestly step back and we, we go, okay, if that should be my mindset and it's not, then what do I do? We confess our sins and we confess our pride, which we know can creep in. And then we praise God for his forgiveness who says, I will cast your sins as far as the east is to the west and I will remember your sins no more. And then he will welcome us into his presence. So we marvel, we praise, and we repent in light of his great humility. Let's pray. Lord God, for everything that I could not clearly communicate or, or could, not, could not push deeper into, Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that we opened your word this morning. And for all those things that we can't do through our worship and through our preaching of the word, I say, praise the Lord that your spirit is within us and deep is crying out to deep. Lord, we love you and we praise you because you loved us first and came for us. And I pray that we live a life today that is an act of humility in light of who you are and that we serve others and not ourselves and that we seek your will and not our own and that your word stands and that we do not desire our own privileges and cling to those. Thank you that you came for us and are bringing us home. Amen.